Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. I'm not sure that you want to be seated after that, but, you know. But man, that was good. Thanks for that, guys. That, that was awesome. So it's been, it's been a good day already, um, you know, after the morning sessions and, and after that. And I'm, I hope you guys had a good afternoon and, and restful time. But, um, man, I think we've been filled already today. Uh, I, I know I have. And, man, I don't know what you guys thought, those of you that were here um, for the morning sessions, but... But those guys were awesome, um, and the Lord really used both of those guys this morning, and I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of them. I'm appreciative of the friendship I have with them. I, I will say, listen, I, um, I loved Code's John and Peter thing. Like, if you know those two guys at all, that is straight money, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna get some miles off of that one. Because um, listen, uh, truthfully, the, uh, I mean, those guys are in here, right? Where are you guys at? Where's Code? Is Code out again? Like, Code wasn't here. Like Code, I called Code out last night. He's not even in here. I'm about to say, like, where's Code? You're out in the lobby. Seriously, hey, hey. <laughs> guys, come on in. Get him in here. Hey, you guys, no, come here. Come here. You know, I'm serious. Come here. We got time. What are you? you what? Are you out with the baby again? Well, you're out with two babies. What were you guys doing? Let's just tell everybody. I mean, if you're going to talk about it, let's just talk about it. Chris Miller. It's the deacon's fault. Listen, <laughs> well, it's always, it's always the deacon's fault. All right, give it up for these two, though, for this morning and what they did. Like, listen, I know, you don't know. You should have been here, you'd have known. But now you're, now you're not. But well, I was going to say, like, you know, Code's the most godly man I know. It's in question now. Um, it's in, I'm, I'm considering it. But before, you know, this introduction, truly, like, you know, Code is, code is that John, and, and Lee is Peter. And I always say about Peter, when Peter didn't know what to say, he always said something. And that is Lee writings, but, but that's my boy. So I, I, I do love him. But man, thanks for coming back out tonight. Um, I hope you're ready to hear. I, I know it's been a long day, but I hope you're ready to hear from the Lord. That's been my prayer, that that's what, that's what, that that's what you'll, you will do, that you'll hear from him, that, that God will speak to you. So if you have your Bibles, with you tonight, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11. And, and as you're turning there, let me just give you kind of a quick reminder of what we're looking at this week. We have our theme of being builders for the Lord and how the Lord desires to use all of us in that work. We're going to talk more about that tonight. We're, we're all necessary. There's a spot for everybody. And, and, and we talked about the book of Nehemiah a little bit last night and kind of gave you a rundown of that. And uh, but when we, we, we landed in, in chapter 7, which is the longest chapter in the book, 73 verses, long list of names, 
And we learned about how we need to protect what we have in our churches and in our fellowship and to whom much is given, much is required, and we've been given a lot. And, and we saw what Nehemiah did in, in chapter 7 to begin protecting the people after they had built the walls around the city to protect them physically. He started setting things up to protect them spiritually and involved organizing a structured leadership and recognizing and, and, and honoring the spiritual legacy and then encouraging and using sincere liberality and giving. And we learned how those same principles need to be in place in our churches if we're going to protect our house and protect our fellowship. Tonight, we're going to jump forward to, to Nehemiah chapter 11, but just to let you know kind of what happens in between there, in, in chapter 8, Ezra gets up and starts preaching the word of God, and, and the people are convicted. They're convicted of their sin. They're convicted of the sin of their fathers and what led to their captivity, and, and you know, a revival breaks out, and in, in chapter 9, they, you know, they repent and then they, they sign a covenant, they all come together and they get their leaders to sign a covenant uh, that they're going to live by, by the word of God. And they're going to do what God has for them to do. And they're committed to it and they're so serious about it that again, they, they get their leaders to put the names down uh, to sign this covenant. And then we get to Nehemiah uh, chapter 11, was it chapter 10? And in Nehemiah chapter 11, it's, a, it's another name full of chapters. Chapter 10 lists all 84 names of the leaders that signed the covenant. That, that's a great chapter as well. And uh, chapter 11 is another chapter full of names. Nehemiah just loves this. He loves listing names. And we talked last night about some of the reasons why, and we'll talk more about that tonight. But, but today and tonight, we're going to see a list of the people living in Jerusalem, those that, that move back and, and their individual and their specific roles within that community. And, you know, at first glance, at first reading of Nehemiah chapter 11, it, it might appear rather mundane. Um, it, it's certainly quite simple. But as mundane as a chapter like this might seem, there, there are always lessons to learn, right? I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And, and, and so not some scripture, but all scripture. All scripture is profitable. And, and that includes Nehemiah chapter 11. So as mundane and as simple as this chapter might be and, as, and, and truly as, as simple as, the, as tonight's message is going to be, and, I, and, and I'm not just saying that, I promise you, it is going to be super simple. It's still important, and in fact, in some ways, it, it might be the most important sermon I preach this week. Um, and, I, and I do believe that, you know, some of the most important messages are the simple ones. There is so much deep and cool stuff to learn about in the Bible, but unless that transforms you, unless that encourages you to be more involved in the mission, then, then man, what's it really doing? You know, the Bible tells us that knowledge puffs up, but char charity edifies. So unless what you know is balanced by what you love, which should be a love for, for God, a love for God's word, a love for the things of God, then, then that book's a dangerous book. It can be a dangerous book for you. And so what we're going to look at tonight is huge because it, I'll just tell you now, if, if, if you're not on board with what we're going to talk about tonight, if you're going to do what is laid out, if you're not going to do what is laid out in Nehemiah chapter 11, then that, this book will be a dangerous book to you, and you'll be in a dangerous spot. And so I'm calling what we're going to study the, tonight the keys to a meaningful life. 
And that's a bold title, but I'm not, I'm not just trying to grab your attention. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. These, what we're going to talk about tonight, these are the keys to living and having a meaningful life. And these simple points that we're going to pull out of our text are exactly what it takes to be a true builder for the Lord. And they're so important for you individually. They are so important for your home, for your family, and and they're so important for your church and our fellowship. Because we live in a day where even the simple things of Christianity are overlooked. Uh, uh, You know, we live in in a dangerous time in history because it's tempting to get caught up in, in what we talk, some of the stuff we talked about last night and what society teaches us and, and, and w- the things of the world. And, you know, and they, they might sound good and they might sound right, but they're not biblical. And it's tough to discern at times. You need that sun. You need God's word to be able to bring to our understanding to our eyes. And, and, you know, if you've been around for a while, you understand the day and the age that we live in, this time, this church age known as Laodicea, defined by apathy and lukewarmness towards the Lord. We would, you know, trace its start to around 1900, you know, maybe officially 1881, but, you know, we'll just say right around the 20th century. And, and again, if you're familiar with church ages and, and dispensations, you know, you, you know that the church age immediately preceding Laodicea was Philadelphia. And from a historical perspective, the Philadelphian church age ran from roughly 1600, you know, maybe officially 1611 to around the turn of the 17th century, uh, uh, you know, t- until roughly 1900. And, and that was a time of great spiritual growth. And I want to read you what God said about that church. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast did not, not denied my name. And I think, you know, it's very easy to, to see what the power was, you know, at that time and in that church age. And, and for those people, it was, it was the key of David, and it was following God's word. And, and because they were behind it, and because they believed it, God opened a door that no man could shut. And they walked through it, and, 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 you know, they turned the world upside down. That was a great time in the history. But, you know, today, that's, that's not the case. We read what Christianity is like, you know, last night with, you know, with some of the quotes that I read. And we live in a, in a time, you know, of postmodernism, right? A postmodern time. And defined for us, I think, best in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away is such a perfect illustration, such a perfect description of the world that we live in today. Those verses describe our society because, you know, what postmodernism would say is that there really isn't truth or I will create my own truth. And all of those things that Paul lists in there is because we've ended up in a place where people don't believe in in an objective standard of truth. They believe in in themselves and they get to determine and they get to decide. It's, it's, It's where you end up 
in a place where people actually believe there are more than two genders and, and, and nonsense like that. Because you get to make it up. And since the church lost its objective standard around 1900 or, you know, maybe 1881, this line of thinking is no longer separate from the church. It's not just a worldly thing, thinking. The world has infiltrated the church. And the church goes along with it there's, because there's just no longer a standard. So, so truth has become subjective. And therefore, the simple things that God commands of us are skipped. They're just skipped over. And, it's, and, and there's no question when you see God's absolute standard and God's objective truth, you can't argue it. But people argue it all the time. We can't be those people. We've got to accept God's word for what it is, believe it, and live it out. Because God's still at work. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is still in the Bible. It says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which he heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. What a, what a powerful verse that is. Not, that verse needs to describe our lives, that we receive God's word, not as, not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God that effectually works in the, uh, those of us that believe it. And if we believe it, God will still work. But, but like that verse says, that, wor that work is based upon what we think about and how we apply God's word. And so it goes back to the standard. Do you have one or not? Do you believe it or not? And even when you don't like it and you don't like what it says and it goes against how you want to live your life, are you willing to conform to it versus having God's word conform to you? Because if you can do that, then God can use you to build his kingdom in an amazing way, in a way you never could imagine. If you're just willing to do it God's way, amazing things can happen. And it's always been the case. And that was certainly the case in Nehemiah today. And even though we're in Laodicea, it's still the case today. Because at the end of the day, this gets to the question that we should always be asking ourselves. All of life really boils down to this. What am I going to do with what God has said? And God said a lot. What am I going to do with it? Am I going to take it as truth, as the word of God, and conform my life to it, or am I not? And there are certainly things that the word of God, just very simply, tells us that we need to do if we are going to be in on the mission and builders of the Lord. And, and we see three very simple things here in Nehemiah chapter 11. It's what this chapter is all about. They built the walls. They set up the spiritual protection of the city. They preached God's word. People responded. They repented. They, they, you know, they, for, they were sorry for their sin, led to their captivity. They signed a covenant to do things God, God's way. And now in chapter 11, it's time to get to work. It's time to do the spiritual work. They've done the physical work in the first half of the chapter. Now they're going to do the spiritual work. And, and that the, gives us the theme for tonight as we study chapter 11, and that's very simply application. So last night we talked about protection, and they moved through a stage. We, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but they moved through a stage, and, 
in, in, in chapters 8 through 10 on consecration, consecrating themselves to the Lord. And now in chapter 11, it's about application. They're going to be, begin applying what they've learned, what they heard from God's word, what they've committed to. And if we're ever going to be true God-glorifying builders of the Lord, builders in our homes and in our churches and in this fellowship, that is the order of operation, right? God's word sets the standard and we set up the protection. We consecrate ourselves to what God has for us and then we go do it. And then we go live it. So tonight we're going to learn what we need to do. And we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter, Nehemiah 11 and verse 1. It's going to become very obvious here very quickly, right when we start reading, that there's a problem that they need to solve. Um, and, and, and the solution that they set up is going to give us the, the keys to a meaningful life. So, you know, I just need you to remember. You, so, you know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot in this book, and it, and it pictures so much. But, but really what I, what I need you to remember tonight is what we talked about with Jerusalem. We'll talk about a little bit more tonight. Jerusalem as, as the center of worship, right? Why? Because the temple was built there. The temple had been rebuilt in Ezra. Now they're protecting it. Now they're getting everything set up to reestablish their community uh, in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, the hub, the center of worship because of the temple. And you need to understand the New, New Testament picture. That, that's us, right? We are the temple. And, and we as the church are the temple. The Holy Spirit of God resides in us. So, so we are the, the place of worship. We're God's dwelling place, right? We're gonna, we'll talk more about that tonight. But you have to, have to keep that in, in mind. That kind of sets up, you know, what, what brings this in, into clearer picture of what all this means. So Nehemiah chapter 11, we're going to read down to verse 4. And then we'll pick up some other verses along the way. But, but follow along with me. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now these are the chief of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah dwelt everyone in his possession in their cities to wit or to, or to know. Israel, the, the priests and the Levites and the Nethanims and the children of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem dwelt certain of the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin, of the children of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Malahiel, and of the children of Perez. All right, so let's go ahead and pray. Let's ask God to, to use his word in our heart tonight, and then we'll get into really seeing and understanding what these keys to a meaningful life really are. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much again uh, just for the opportunity we have to come and, and, and hear from you. And so, Lord, I'm thankful for everybody that's here. I'm thankful for the, the praise and the worship we had tonight to set our hearts on you um, because you are the only one that deserves it. You deserve all the worship that we can give you and so much more, but you're the only one. And so, Lord, I pray that you get that tonight. I pray that this entire service is a sweet savor. I pray that, that hearts right now are preparing themselves to, to hear from you and to do what you say. And Lord, as you, I, I pray that your spirit has uh, free reign to prick our hearts tonight and, and Lord, just to, just to penetrate uh, our hearts, just to, just to mold ourselves to you according to what your word has to say. And so, Lord, use it. Just use it tonight and be glorified in it. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. And, and Lord, I pray that, that, that you do what only you can do. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we see a problem here right from the very beginning of this chapter. 
And the problem was there weren't enough people living in Jerusalem. So, you know, groups had come back. We had a group under Zerubbabel, a group with Ezra, now a group with Nehemiah. And they had come back and they had established, rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the walls. And, and the goal is to reestablish Jerusalem as a thriving city of Jewish culture. Now, they were still, you know, they were they, they're coming out of the time of captivity, but they weren't, you know, they weren't exactly free. But, but they were trying to establish Jerusalem again with the Jewish culture. And there weren't enough people living in Jerusalem to really do it. As they were reestablishing the city, work had to get done. And, and whenever work has to get done, there's one resource, one primary resource that God has chosen to do work through. And that's people. And that's us, right? We have a job to do. God's given a mission. God's given a work to do. And he's given it to us. So people resources are necessary. If you don't have enough people, the job doesn't get done. Now we saw this foreshadowed back in, in chapter seven in verse four, where it says, now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not builded, right? The, the Jerusalem had been in ruin and they've reestablished and rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt walls for protection, but they, don't even, they haven't even rebuilt the houses, there's, there's too few people there to really get the work done. And, and there's a housing shortage out there. I and mean, some of you might even know what that's about. And this city was one, again, you know, because they weren't completely free, was still prone to be attacked. It was Jerusalem. And they, they were back in the land, but they still had plenty of enemies. And that's why they rebuilt the walls and the gates for that protection. So listen, it wasn't exactly appealing for everyone to come back. Even the Jews that were excited about what was going on in Jerusalem. Well, okay, you're going you're gonna to come back and you're going to have to work really hard and you're not going to have a house to live in, probably. And you're probably going to still get attacked. Now, you know, it's not the most appealing job. But listen, this is what God was asking of them. And, and God asked of us to do some things that can be a little dangerous and not all that appealing and not all that comfortable. We got to ask ourselves in this day and age, are, are we going to be willing to step up to the plate and do what God's asked us to do simply because God has asked us to do it? What other reason do we need? God's asked us to do those things. So this is the situation. It was way safer. It was way easier. It was way more comfortable to live in one of the villages outside of those city. You see many of those villages listed. We're not going to get there tonight. We just don't have time to go through all of it. But if you look at the end of chapter 11 in verses 25 through 36, it lists a number of villages that the Jews lived in that were outside of the city. It's way easier to live there, way more comfortable to live there. They actually had houses and stuff. But to accomplish all that God was leading them to do, they needed more people. So they needed some people that were willing to get uncomfortable and do some hard things because God was asking them to. And I believe that this is true of us as well. Not only in our individual churches, but for the body of Christ as a whole, there's a, there's a labor shortage. Not only is there a housing shortage, there's a labor shortage. 
Jesus noted the problem in Matthew chapter 9. Many of you know these verses, verses 36 and 37. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And that's a problem that exists today. You know, maybe it didn't exist in the Philadelphian church age. I don't know. I didn't live then. But I know it exists today. I pastor a church and I know it exists today. I know we could use more people resources. And we have a great church that's about the mission. But we need more. And that brings us to our first key to a meaningful life. Here is what Jerusalem needed. And here is what our churches need. Here is what our fellowship needs. And it is quite simply for people to show up. Need people to show up. Now, I'm going to explain that because that, that there's, means a little bit deeper than, than just those two words. But we need people to show up. And listen, the children of Israel needed people to show up. And they weren't picky. They just needed people that would trust the Lord enough to show up and fill a position of need and get involved, even if it made them a little bit uncomfortable. And I say that they needed people that would trust the Lord because of how they went about filling this need. Look again at verse 1. And the rulers of Israel, uh, the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. Okay, so let me explain to you what's going on. In order to fulfill this need, this need of just simply people resources to do the work in the city, Nehemiah puts together a draft-type system used in the Old Testament. It's called the casting of lots. And they casted lots to send a tithe. 10% of the Jews who were living outside of the city, they were drafting them to go live in the city. If the lot fell on them, they were to move. This is where we get the phrase, this is just my lot in life. Not as well as, as many other commonly used phrases comes from your King James Bible. And casting lots was just a way to make a determination when they didn't know exactly which way to go. And historically, we're, we're told it was done by using colored rocks or rocks with numbers painted on them, things like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I do know the Hebrew word for lot is, is, is defined as stone or pebble. But I, I don't know exactly if that's true or not. We don't see that in the Bible. Last year, I taught a, a homiletics class. I'll just give you an example. I taught a homiletics class in our LFBI at, at First Baptist Church. And, and all the guys had to preach a message from passages that I picked out. So I picked out, we had like 20 guys in there, and I picked out like 20 passages. And I just wrote them all on a piece of paper, and I put them in a hat. And they just had it one at a time. They just went, and, and they just picked out the paper out of the hat, and, and they had to preach whatever it was that they got. And, so, and admittedly, some were easier passages and some were more difficult. It's just their lot. They got what they got. So it's sort of like that. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament, God used the casting of lots as a system to give direction. Bef here's the key. Before the Bible was completed. God spoke to people and he spoke through people much differently in the Old Testament than he does today. I think we can all agree on that. Today, there's one way. We have a completed, preserved, and perfect word of God. That is how God speaks to us today. 
That obviously wasn't true in Old Testament times. So God did use other methods, and he used things like dreams and visions and the casting of lots. And of course, in like anything, anything legitimate that, that God set up, the devil counterfeits. So the devil counterfeited that as well. And so, you know, today, to this day, we have people using Ouija boards and tarot cards and, you know, Splankna and all sorts of stuff that counterfeit what was once legitimate, something legitimate that God did, the casting of Lot. All that is demonic today. God speaks to you and me today through his word as the Holy Spirit teaches us what it says. We don't need nothing else. So if you're getting messages from what you think is God through other means, you should probably be concerned. And I point that out because I need you to know that, that when they were casting lots here in Nehemiah chapter 11, they weren't doing anything wrong. In fact, it was their way of putting this situation into God's hands and trusting him. They were trusting him for the outcome. The first mention of casting lots is in Leviticus 16.8. It has to do with the Day of Atonement. So if you're familiar with the Day of Atonement, you know that there were two goats, one used for the sin offering, and then there was the scapegoat. So the high priest would, 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 would cast lots to see which, which one would be the sin offering, which one would be the scapegoat. Leviticus 16.8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. This was by the command of God. See, this was a system that God set up when the children of Israel finally made it into Canaan, and they're dividing up the land among the tribes, you know how they determined who got what parcel? Well, Joshua 18.10 tells us, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land unto the children of Israel according to their divisions. I think Proverbs 16.33 is maybe the definitive passage on, on how the people of God were to view the casting of lots in the Old Testament. Verse says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing there is of the Lord. So they cast the lots to hear from the Lord, and he's going he's gonna to dispose of what needs to be disposed of. This is a system God set up for Israel to trust him to lead them. And it's interesting because it's even applied to personal disputes and arguments. Proverbs 18, 18, the lot causeth contentions to cease and parteth between the mighty. Listen, there are times that I wish casting lots were still for today. And it would, sounds like it would save a lot of counseling hours. Because today people actually have to walk in the spirit and follow Bible principles to solve their relationship issues. And who wants to do that? My experience says not too many, but you know, who am I? It doesn't matter that, you know, you're coming to me with a problem. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. I think I'm telling you what God's word says pretty clearly. Even seems like you don't want to do it still, even though you still have the problem. I don't know. I just, it's weird. Do you experience this at all, Sam, or is it just me? I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I'm off task. I better, let me get back. The system of casting lots, it, it was really about placing a situation in, in God's hands. So while we, we don't cast lots today, because we don't have to, because we have everything we need in God's word. There is a spiritual application for us. Because there are things in life that we cannot control. And, and when it, you know, if you compare this back to Nehemiah chapter 11, they didn't control that. God was in control. It was just if, if, if they were drafted, they were to go back to Jerusalem. 
And there's things in life that we can't control. There are even very terrible things that happen in this sin-stained world, and we see it all the time. But what we can do is trust God in the midst of it. And God gives every man a free will, and the choice of man to sin isn't God's fault. But God is still sovereign. God still guides and leads us. And what God is asking of us is to show up or keep showing up and trust him to take care of everything that we cannot control. There's a lot of things we can't control, but we know what we can, and we know what we're to do. And when God asks us to do it, even if it's hard and even if it's uncomfortable and even if there's bad things going on around us, God wants us to show up and trust him and walk according to his word. So there are plenty of things in our lives that we have no control over. You, I, we have no control who our parents are, what family we were born into. You have no control where you were born, when you were born, even things like the color of your skin or if you were born with or developed a disease at a young age, say, that has nothing to do with bad habits. All that, you know, so to speak, is your lot in life. And from the outside, it might look like other people have a better lot. And listen, maybe they do from a physical, worldly perspective. But all I know is all of that that is out of our control is above our pay grade. God wants us to embrace all of it and trust him in the process and show up where he has you to make a difference for his glory. And you might not like your lot. You might wish you could choose a different lot, but that's where trust comes in. I'm sure not everybody wanted to go back to Jerusalem where they didn't have a house. But you have to be able to trust God in those situations. And listen to me, you need to be able to trust a God that already has proven, even be long before you were born, how much he loves you. We heard this morning about the goodness of God and how good he is all the time. And he proved that when he sent his son to die on the cross in our place and rose again on the third day. He proved that when he did it while we were yet sinners, as Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we can trust him. You can control that. There's a lot of things you cannot control. And you got to let God handle it. But you can control your trust in those situations. And you can, you can control whether you're willing to show up or not. And the children of Israel were trusting God to show them who needed to show up in Israel. And if their name got called, listen, they agreed to go. And for every believer in Jesus Christ today, listen to me, when you placed your faith in him, your name got called. Your name got called. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, speaking of God who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
Listen, if you willingly, because, because God doesn't force anything upon us, if you willingly accepted him in faith and took his name, then your name got called. Have you shown up? Have you shown up to the mission? Have you reported for duty? Because he called your name. And your job begins by showing up. And it doesn't end there. We have a couple more points to go through. But this is where it starts. Being willing to show up and trust him wherever you find yourself, even if you have no control over where it is. And when you do that, God can lead you from there. That's, you know, some of the most popular verses in the Bible. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. Again, that's, that's where things are above your pay grade. But what we can do is in all thy ways acknowledge him and he'll direct our path. He's promised to do that. This is one of the many promises in the Bible, but listen, it's conditional. It's one of the many conditional promises. He'll direct our paths when we acknowledge him. Are you acknowledging him by showing up? By reporting for duty and acknowledging him and his goodness and all of it in the midst of everything that you're dealing with. If you do, he'll lead you. So men, let me, let me ask you a question. Ladies, you can listen in, but I want to ask the men a question first. Are you showing up in your homes as a representative of the Lord, reporting for duty for your wives for your kids, they need you to show up and trust the Lord so that you can lead them in the way of the Lord. Are you showing up in your church as a representative of the Lord to help lead others into a relationship with him that he has, he has privileged you with? Have you reported for that duty? Your name got called. You need to show up and get involved. And, and that is an important distinction because showing up in, in this context that we're talking about in our homes and in our church, it does not only mean your presence. It also means your involvement. Why were they drafting people to go back to Jerusalem? It wasn't to sit and do nothing. If that was the case, they should stay in the village. No, they needed people to work. They needed people to show up and get to work. And that's what we need to do. We need to show up and be about the mission. We need to show up and be involved. This is what God expects from us. You can see that in the interaction. You can see this throughout the Bible. But I want to show you this interaction with Moses on Mount Sinai. It's in Exodus 24 and verse 12. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, come up to, the, come up to, to me into the Mount, this is in the Mount Sinai, when he's given him the, the, the law. And, and the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the Mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And you need to see the very words of scripture because God tells us the difference between presence and involvement because he says, I need you to come up to me and be there. And those are two different things. And those are two different commands. And that's a principle that's true all across the board. We saw it this morning. 
in code when he was talking about those, those two of, of, of um, John's disciples, right? And they, they want to see where Jesus dwelled. And what, did Jesus, what was Jesus' answer to them? Come and see. Those are two different things. And so listen to me. It is very possible, especially the men, listen to me. It is very possible to be physically present in your home, but not really there. But you're not there. You're, you're there. You've come up, but you're not there. You're not seeing. You're not understanding what's going on in the life of your wife and your kids and what they're going with and how God needs you to be involved for them. It's very possible to attend church, but not really be there. Not involved. Not allowing God to speak to you when the word of God is preached. Listen, we don't need church attenders. Like, listen, if you attend your church, and I say this to my church, if you attend, great. I, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy that you're here. But God's called us to so much more. There's attending. Oh, be involved. Don't make that mistake because, listen, here is why this is so important. When, with respect to our home and our church, they, those are God-ordained institutions. God set up the family, set up the home. He set up the church. He set up government, right? But with respect to our home and the church, those are God-ordained institutions. So we need to view them as such. And, and what's that mean? It means they're set apart for a holy purpose, right? And what we see in Nehemiah 11 verse 1 is that Jerusalem needed folks to show up for the same reason. Because I want you to see, it says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. What? The holy city. It's called Jerusalem the holy city. And this is the first time in Scripture that Jerusalem is called the holy city. Now, it is found in the book of Psalms. It is found in the book of Isaiah that chronologically would have been before Nehemiah. But this is the first mention in the canon order of Scripture. And it's because it's a set-apart city. It's Jerusalem. This is why I told you, you need to understand what's going on here. And the picture in Nehemiah is that our dwelling place is to be set apart. Jerusalem is where they were to dwell because it's where God dwelled. Jerusalem was God's dwelling place for Israel in the Old Testament with the temple. Psalm 911 says, Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doing. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. And, and, and those obviously have, a, have a, a, a doctrinal context, doctrinal meaning. But historically, they have that as well. This holy city, it was a set-apart place. And, and our dwelling place, I mean, physically our homes and our lives as believers, our, our churches, the body of Christ, because according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, ye or we are the temple of God. Those are set-apart institutions of God. And listen, you making your home and your church a set-apart place, the, the way you show that, that is something special, that is something God has chosen to work through your life to work through, you, you prove that by showing up and getting involved and trusting the Lord to work through you. 
But as I've already mentioned, that's, that's where it starts. It's not where it ends. So second, when you, when you do that, when you show up and you get involved, it's going to lead to the second thing, the second key to life, and that's sacrifice. Because there were those in Nehemiah who willingly offered to go live in Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. So they did the casting of lots. They did a draft system. And then verse 2, it says, and all the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. And the word offered is an interesting word. It's see it in, throughout the Bible in both Testaments. It almost always involves offering a sacrifice. You know, Paul used the term in the last epistle that he wrote to Timothy shortly before his death. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he said, For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. And that is just such a... In such a beautiful, in, interesting verse because he's, you know, he's, he's getting ready to die shortly, and he knows it shortly before his death. And he says, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready to be offered as a sacrifice to God, and my departure is at hand. And, and I love it because he doesn't say my death is at hand. My, de, my departure is at hand. A, a departure is a takeoff. When you depart on a plane, that's the beginning of the trip. The arrival is the end. He's just getting started. And he knew it and he believed it. And he was talking about his death, obviously, as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificing it all. But he also used it in his earlier epistles, speaking of being a living sacrifice, right? We, you know, the living sacrifice but from Romans 12, 1. But so listen to what he told the church at, at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 16 and 17. He said, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And he's, he's talking about being a living sacrifice for, for the Philippians, giving his life for them. And the word offered is used 28 times in the New Testament. 26 of those 28 times, it refers to offering a sacrifice. Now, sometimes this, it's in the context of an, a sacrifice to God, and, and, and other times it's not. But either way, a sacrifice was involved. It's, this is the same throughout the Bible, same with the Old Testament. We see it from the beginning with Cain and Abel. We see it with Abraham and Isaac. We looked at that this morning. Hebrews eleven seventeen. I think we might have even looked at this verse. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. He that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And of course, we see it in Jesus. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Like I said, every time you see this, it's nearly every time. It's in the context of, of sacrifice and Sometimes it was to God like Abraham, and other times it wasn't, or, or at least it wasn't acceptable to God like Cain. And I think that tells us something about sacrifice. And it tells me about our willingness. It tells me about your willingness. It tells me about my willingness as far as offering ourselves a sacrifice. It's not about if. It's just about who. Listen, because our life it's, it's, it's going to be offered. We're, off, we're going to offer our life as a sacrifice to somebody. So, or let me, let me just say it this way. Let me say it this way. The question isn't if your life will be a sacrifice. The question upon whose altar will you lie? 
The children of Israel willingly offered themselves to the Lord to go back to Jerusalem in Nehemiah 11. So will you show up and willingly be that living sacrifice for the Lord that Romans 12, 1 demands of us? Or will you just live for yourself and sacrifice yourself for yourself because you are your own God? Who are you offering your life to? You can't say no one. It doesn't work that way. You know, I think, I think uh, maybe Lee talked about uh, Joshua this morning and Joshua 24, 15, that famous, you know, it's the end of Joshua's life. He's given the speech to, to the nation of Israel and he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. You know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting verse that, that there's no option to not choose. <laughs> it says, choose you this day whom you serve. If the Lord, if the Lord is God, serve him. If not, then serve, then serve Baal, serve the other gods. But you don't get a choice to not serve one of them. It's not how this life works. You're going to lay your life on an altar. You just have to decide whose altar it's going to be. So can you at least tamper down the selfishness some and consider your family? Will you be a sacrifice for them? Are they worth it? To lead them toward the ways of God? If you can't do it for yourself, can you do it for them? There's a beautiful picture of that in the Old Testament with the law of the Hebrew servant. It's found in Exodus chapter 21. And in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. And if he are married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if thy servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring, to, bring him to the door or under the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an awe, and he, he shall serve him forever. And this is, man, this is just loaded with beautiful pictures. And it all starts with Jesus and his willingness to be nailed to a wooden post because of his love for his bride and his children. And it points to Passover. It points to John chapter 10, verse 7 says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. But then again, I'm speaking to the men tonight. For all the men in here, it's a picture of, for you and me as well. And our choice to be a living sacrifice and take up our cross for our family. So listen, a lot of guys say they love their wife and their children. There's one way to definitively prove it. Go to the doorpost. Go to the doorpost. Follow the example of Jesus. And be willing to say, no, I love my master. And I love my wife. And I love my children. So put that hole in my ear and I'm going to serve you forever. Do you love your master enough 
Do you love your wife enough? Do you love your children enough to go to the doorpost? You see this again in Deuteronomy 15. It's the same scenario in the second giving of the law. A servant can go free in the seventh year. Listen, and it shall be if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee because he loveth thee in thine house because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take it all and thrust it through his ear into the door and he shall be thy servant forever and also unto thy maidservant and thou shalt do likewise. See, he had the choice. If you, if you study that whole passage, both in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, he has a choice to go free. He just has to do it on his own. Are you going to do that? The servant gets to choose, and it takes a willingness. It takes someone who's willing to show up and someone to willingly offer. And listen to me, while it's a sacrifice, it is the only life worth living. You're not living if you're not doing that. Living for something that is bigger than you. It goes back to what Paul said in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. There's one thing to make your life mean something. And it's another thing to throw it away and go and live for yourself. Listen, God gives you the ability to handle it. If you're willing to be that sacrifice, Code talked about it this morning, right? Romans 12, 1, how does that start? By the mer- I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It gets back to what Lee said and the goodness of God and believing that and trusting him. But listen, here's the thing about those mercies. Here's what's very interesting about those mercies. Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 and 23. When you study that out, you know what it says? It talks about how God is so faithful, how his, you know, he's so faithful to us. Why? His mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new Every morning. And then when, and, 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 but when you look at that word mercies and you study it out, the first mention is in Genesis chapter 32. And Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. And we don't have time. This is, this is just based on what Coach said this morning. So I don't, have these in my, I don't have these in my notes or anything. But Genesis 32, verse 10, you can go look it up. It's connected to truth. You know what Psalm 85, 10 says? It says mercy and truth are met together. Do you know how you receive those mercies that are new every morning? You go to the truth of God's word. And he has mercies for you to get by when you've given your life as a living sacrifice. And all that means and all the pain that comes with it. God says, listen, I'll get you through today. I have mercies for you today. But what we do is we complain about the day and the hard day and all that we go through and never once go to God's word to get through the day. The mercies are there every morning. Did you go get them this morning? If you didn't, then don't complain. Go get those mercies and then go be a living sacrifice. He'll get you through it. And listen, you got to follow that out. If those mercies are new every morning, that means the mercies that you went and got this morning, they might not apply tomorrow. There's new mercies for tomorrow. Go get them. And that's how you can be a living sacrifice. Something that makes no sense to this world. 
No, it makes perfect sense when you give yourself to God's word and you throw your life into that and you do what it says and it says be a living sacrifice. You say, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll give my life to you. And God says, man, that's all I've been waiting for here. I'm going to help you through. Come get my mercies. Man, how good is he? And it brings you into fellowship with him. How's fellowship built? It's built by spending time with him. And that's what Philippians 3.10 is talking about, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. How did Christ suffer? He suffered so many ways, but he suffered most when he died on the cross for you and me as an offering. And we get to be in fellowship with him as we spend time with him in God's word. And it just brings us closer and closer to him. There's a special bond that comes from being willing to be a living sacrifice. And listen, on one hand, it almost sounds like blasphemy to compare what we go through to what Christ went through. It's ludicrous. But on the other hand, that's the comparison God makes in his word. And that's how he views it. We can please him through our sacrifice, just like Jesus did through his. And when you look down at Jesus after his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, as he was starting his earthly ministry, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus offered himself on the cross, God was pleased with and accepted that sacrifice. And listen, there is coming a day that we have the opportunity to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. A servant that willingly laid his body upon the wooden doorpost. And that brings us to our third key to a meaningful life because here's how you fulfill that sacrifice. You serve. I told you this is super simple. <laughs> Show up, sacrifice, serve. Those are our points. Like I can't make it any easier. But, I, but I'm just not that smart, so I have to do it this way. But these are the keys to a meaningful life. This is so important. Because listen, starting in verse 3, all the way down through verse 24, we get our next list of names. Right? So there's another, I told you, Nehemiah just loves it, man. He's just, he's just, listed, he's just throwing out name after name after name. And it's the names of the people working and serving in Jerusalem. And we get who was there, how many were there, and what they did, and their role in serving the Lord. So, for example, look at verses 9 and 10. And please forgive me as I am just about to butcher a whole bunch of names. Listen, I've already, like, butchered, you know, 15 of them, and I just, like, you know, keep pushing through. And I know if you're, like, looking at it, you're like, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's how you pronounce that name. <laughs> well, the truth is I'm not either. I'm just saying it as we, as we go. So, you know, here we go. We're going to read some verses in, in Nehemiah chapter 11. So verse 9. And Joel, the son of Zikri, was the overseer. And Jude, Judah, the son of Sanua, was second over the city of the priest. Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin. And then verse 12. And their brethren that did the work of the house were 820 and 2. And Adiah, the son of Jer Jeroham, the son of Pelilah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malchi. And then listen to verses 16 down through verse 22. And Shabbatai and Jehoshaphat of the chief of the Levites had the oversight of the outward business of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, was the principal to begin the thanksgiving and prayer. 
and Bakbukiah, the second among his brethren, and, and Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galel, the son of Jejuthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 200, fourscore and four. Moreover, the porters, right? Those were the gatekeepers that we talked about last night. And Achab and Talman and the brethren that kept the gates were in 172. And the residue of Israel, of the priests and the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nethanims, the Nethanims are explained earlier, they're the temple slaves willing to do anything. They dwelt in Ophel and Zepha and Gispah were over the Nethanims. The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Oze, the son of Bani, the son of Heshabiah, the son of Mattaniah, the son of Micah, uh, the sons of Asaph. The singers were over the business of the house of God. Whew. Okay. But what you can see here is everybody has spot in service, working together daily. And listen, this is just a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. We see much of that laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're told that there are diversities of gifts and differences of administration, but there's one Lord and one body of Christ. And then starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And so he's talking about this baptism, right? Verse 12, for as the body is one of many members, they're all, for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. And the baptism that Paul's talking about there is not the water baptism that we perform in our baptries or your water troughs, whatever it is that you have at your church. What happens in those baptistries or water tanks is a picture and what happens to us spiritually when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when the Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ, right? He immerses us into the body of Christ, and, and that's God's plan, and his plan is for it all work together in service. Look at verse 20. But now are they many members, but yet one body. You see, listen, I, I want you to think about this and the pictures that, that, that are there and, and both doctrinally and, and for us. You see, we're not immersed into ourselves. We are immersed into the body. And that's pictured in the local church, right? As, as you know, you're, you enter into the, the picture of the spiritual baptism is, is what God did for you at salvation. And as you enter, the, become a member of the local church, that's pictured in the water, all of that stuff. Uh, obviously, the water baptism does, doesn't save us. We're, man, we're saved by when we're spiritually baptized. But there's a, there's a beautiful picture there that the local church represents. And we're to serve the Lord together with each other. And you just can't get around that fact that we are to live and serve in relationships. All of us, everybody in Jerusalem needed to work. And we all need to as well. From the bit, you, you just can't get around this. Even from the beginning of man, after God created Adam, he said in Genesis 2.18 that it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he made Eve. And, and that's what you see here all throughout 1 Corinthians 12. So no one has the right to say, I don't need you. You know, and, and, and get mad and walk away. Lee was talking about that this morning. And, you know, people just get upset. And so, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just getting cold. And they, you can see them start to slip. And they quit showing up. 
and they quit being involved, not willing to serve, and their way's the right way. And they say, I don't need you. I don't need this church. I can do my own thing. I can stay away from here, or I can stay away from my family, or, or I can think, well, I'll show up, but I'm not going to be involved, and I'm not going to serve. Listen, you are out of God's will if you say that or you think that. That's just the bottom line. No, you are to serve in worship of God. So to get you to think about this a little bit, let me ask you a question, all right? I want you to think. When you gather at your church on Sundays or a Tuesday night from Midtown or Wednesday night at our church, you know, all of those times, when you gather at your church, whatever, whenever it is you meet, let's just say Sundays, what is your goal? When you walk in, what is your goal for that church service? I, I, I literally, I want you to think about it. I want you to ask yourself that. Why do you come to church? Or, or let me ask it this way. Do you go to church to get something or to give something? Do you go to church to get something or give something? You know, sometimes when people say, people will say, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really get anything out of that sermon. <laughs> and, and listen, when it comes to my sermons, I wish people wouldn't say that, but I get it. <laughs> it happens. But, but let me tell you the truth. When I'm writing a, a sermon, I'm not thinking of you first. I'm not thinking of the people in my church first. My first consideration is not what will you, what will the listeners get out of it? My first consideration is, is, is this what God wants me to say? What's God going to get out of this? Because I want to give to the Lord what he deserves before I give to anybody else. And I believe that ought to be the focus for all of us when we come to church. What did the Lord receive because I was here? Did he receive anything? Because I, I showed up at church today. Did he receive true worship from me? Because that's what he desires. We heard it this morning. And listen very closely to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 23. We read this this morning. We're going to read it again. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And listen, if there are true worshipers, that means there are fake worshipers. And fake worshipers don't show up to church to worship the Lord. They show up to church for themselves and what they can get out of it. But you need to know that God is seeking something from us every time we assemble. And he is seeking worship in spirit and in truth as we submit, as we sacrifice the code's going to continue to lay out this week. And as we serve. And I, be, I believe that in today's age, there's far too much emphasis on what the church can offer to the people of God versus what the people of God can offer to the Lord through church. And we come just, what, what can I get today? Why don't you start with what can I give today? 
And don't get me wrong, we do receive so much through church ministries and church services and the worship and the praise and the preaching of God's word. And, and God is so good, he designed it to work that way. And it's okay to come with our empty cups, asking the Lord to fill us back up. And that's the reality of life sometimes. We should expect the Lord to speak to us and do a work in our hearts and change us. And people that come to our services that aren't saved, listen, my desire, all the other pastors' desire here is that they would hear from the Lord and have their eyes open to the truth of the glorious gospel and receive salvation that day by calling on him. But for those of us that are already believers, I'm talking about our focus. And the focus of our worship service should first and foremost be on the Lord, what we can give him and listen, when we come with that focus, we get so much back in return because you can never outgive the Lord. He is so good and he's so gracious that he's always gonna give back. When you come as a true worshiper and you give him the adoration and you just sing what you're feeling in your heart, in sincerity and honesty to the Lord. And then, man, you're, you're, you're looking to minister. I, you know, I tell our, our deacons all the time, but it doesn't, shouldn't just apply to deacons. Man, no, you need, to, you need to come with your deacon hat on, which is a servant hat. Don't show up to church. Don't expect to do nothing. I got work to do. It's a work day. If we, man, what would the church be if we all viewed it that way? This is a work day. Let's get to work. Let's give the Lord what he deserves. Let's love on people. Let's worship the Lord. Let's hear what he has to say. And when he actually says something to us, when we've been willing to soften our hearts to the point to be able to hear from him, let's respond. How about that? In worship to him, in submission, in willing to sacrifice and willing to do the things that he's asking of us. Why? Just because he asked it of us. What else you want to be a part of? And when you do that, God's going to give you back so much. You'll get so much out of that church service. God will, God will bless your socks off because that's who he is. But our attitude should be the one of showing up to sacrifice and serve. And that's exactly the principle we see in Nehemiah chapter 11. We see the list of people in the groups who all had specific gifts and abilities. Those were all involved. There were those who were involved in outreach. There were those that involved in the oversight of the outward business of the house of God. There were the porters or the gatekeepers. Those were who we talked about that last night, who knew the word, who knew doctrine and protected the city from false teachers getting in. I mean, that inspirationally. There were the nethanims. They were the utility players. They could do about everything and they were willing to do anything. They assisted the Levites. They made the pastor's job so much easier. There were project managers who kept the internal wheels spinning and everybody on track. There were those who specialized in prayer and music and special care of the people of the city. This, is a, this sounds like a good church to me. It sounds like a healthy body. And the fact is we need everybody serving for this thing to work as God designed. And you might think, I don't know what I can do. I don't know where I fit in. Well, I don't either, but here's what I know. I know there's a place for you. There's absolutely 100% a place for you because the Bible says. 
So in conjunction with your pastors and your leaders, find it. Get involved for the right reasons. And listen, here's what's so cool about this. Talk about God being just a blesser. When you do that, you are singled out for the good. Because listen, all of these guys serving in Jerusalem, we know them by name. We can't pronounce their names, but we know them by name. We have their names in front of us. And they were praised for their work. In verse 6, we see a group called valiant men. And then in verse 14, they're called mighty men of valor and great men. And I don't know about you, but that's my goal. That's how I want God to look at me. And it's interesting because listing the names and praising them was important to Nehemiah because it is important to God. He notes our worshipful service. I told you last night, God keeps records. And you say, no, 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 I don't want praise. I don't care about that. And that's noble, but that's not actually how God made us. Now, you should not serve for praise. You should never seek the praise of man. You should not seek it at all. And God forbid that you praise yourself. But if somebody, including the Lord, gives you praise and it's legitimate because you're doing it for the right reasons, then you could rejoice that you get to be a part of something that's so much bigger than you. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. See, praise in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Nehemiah praised all these men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because they were a part. They were willing. They showed up and made their life about something that was huge, serving the Lord and not themselves. And God took enough note to record it in Scripture that is settled forever. Think about that. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So every name in the Bible is settled and recorded forever, both the good and the bad. But from the good side, this shows us that our heavenly father sees and records and loves what his children do as they serve him. So please listen to me. Even if others don't recognize you, even if you don't get any praise and you don't feel like you're appreciated, if you're doing it for the right reason, you can know that God knows all about it and he will reward, reward you accordingly. And really, that's all that matters. It matters if God notices, not anyone else. But for that to happen, you need to show up. Never underestimate the value of your presence and your involvement with your kids at your church. Do not be negligent in this area. You are disobedient if you're not showing up. This life is about way more than you. In fact, it's not really about you at all. So show up for them. And when you do, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Be willing to go to the doorpost, modeling Jesus as you serve him wherever, whenever, however. And listen, if you do that, you can trust that it will be worth it in the end. And that right there, that's a meaningful life. But the only remaining question is this. Does it describe your life? Are you showing up? Are you sacrificing? Are you serving? Or is your life still about you? And if it is, 
Why don't you lay down a stake tonight and be willing to grow past that and get involved with others in your church in service to the Lord? He's worthy of it all. We sang about it today. He's worthy of everything we can give him and so much more. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Brandon, you guys want to come on back up? And we're going to close out. Listen, we're going to close out in, in singing. But if, if you need to get with the Lord tonight, or, or you, if you need to get with one of your pastors and one of your leaders, do you guys want to, you guys, we want to have some people up here tonight. We can have some people um, up here. And if you need, or you can just find your pastor, you can find your leader. If, if, if you've been negligent in this area, and you haven't really been showing up in your home, at your church, and if you've not been sacrificing and you've not been willing to go to the doorpost yet, and if you're not serving and you're not involved with the body, man, watch, if, if, if not now, then when? When are you gonna get right? And so some of the pastors will be up here, and if, if your pastor isn't up here and he's here, find him and tell him that, that you're ready. And if you don't know the Lord, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, come talk to anybody. Come talk to me. And we can show you tonight. We can we won't give you our opinion. We'll show you out of God's word how you can know for a fact tonight that you're, you're going to be saved and spend eternity with God. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just the example that you show us out of every book, but certainly out of the book of Nehemiah and and just what it is, the, the ways we can live a meaningful life that's worth something. And, and Lord, you are certainly worthy of it. And so, Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your willingness to show up for us, your willingness to sacrifice for us, and you're willing to be the greatest servant ever. And Lord, help us to, to follow in your footsteps. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to sing. If you, listen, if you need to do business with the Lord tonight, you need to come forward and do business. No. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.